glass window on the very front with a semicircle cut out of it. And behind that window, a tall, bald man with a big nose and a mustache that would move when he talked. I want only a husband who is honest and brave. We love stories! It's time for the apple seed, filled with stories for you and your family. All kinds of tales from all kinds of tellers. I'm Sam Payne. We've got stories from Judy Lubin and Joseph Bruschek coming up. Stories like Gluskabe and the Water Monster and the Pearl that Shone by Night, a story from China. But first, in order to introduce us to the first story that we're going to hear today, I'm pleased to be joined in the studio by Samantha Danes, one of our assistant producers. Samantha, it's great to have you with me. Great to be here. I, when I was a kid, I'm thinking fourth grade now, right? Uh, what we did every day for recess, every it seems like every kid in my fourth grade class got a pair of roller skates for Christmas. Are you Christmas. serious? And we rolled and rolled and rolled every day for recess on the big patio outside the cafeteria. Oh my gosh, that's so fun. <laughs> of course, <laughs> I'm thinking about that because we're going to talk about this Adam Booth story. Right? Yeah, it's a roller skating right. story, which is, that's funny you say that because I actually have never roller skated in my life. <laughs> <laughs> I have ice skated, but never roller skated. That's actually on my to-do list of things I need oh, yeah? to do this okay. summer. <laughs> Um, but yes, this is a story of Adam Booth when he was 11 years old, and the big thing to do when he was 11 was to go to the Rollerama. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, 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 I know exactly the kind of place he's talking about, right? And and even today, I gotta say, I I, I enjoy an occasional trip to the, <laughs> the to the roller rink, rink, right? Yeah. When I was a kid, it was a you know, a, a, an old an old gym. In fact, we called it the old gym. That on Wednesday nights was a roller rink, and all the kids in town would go down there and pay their couple of bucks and put on those skates, and away they'd go. So fun! <laughs> yeah, it's a fun story. Rollerama is the name of the story. Adam Booth is the storyteller. Adam Booth, the wonderful storyteller and also musicologist. You know, it's almost as fun to hear Adam Booth sing Appalachian murder ballads as it is (laughs) (laughs) to hear him tell these wonderful stories of his childhood. And we're happy to bring you this tale here on The Appleseed. Rollerama by Adam Booth. Now, I wasn't a particularly athletic child, I wasn't a big child, and I wasn't a very lucky child. So it took me until I was 11 years old before I won anything in my life. And this is that story. Now, when I was 11 years old, my home at 210 West 9th Avenue was in a row with all the other homes in our block. And if you went behind those homes, there was a railroad track just across the alley. And if you crossed the railroad track and went down a block and a half, there was Rollerama. That was our neighborhood roller skating rink. Now, I grew up in a poor family, and we didn't usually have the money to go over to Rollerama. But on Tuesday nights, you could get in for a discount, only $2. And every now and then, my family can manage to save up enough money to give me those $2 so that I could cross the railroad tracks, go down the block and a half, and there was Rollerama with a glass window on the very front with a semicircle cut out of it. And behind that window, a tall, bald man with a big nose and a mustache that would move when he talked. Give him the $2 for discount night, and he'd give you a ticket. You go in through the door that led to a hallway that was very long, and at the end of it, one hanging, flickering light bulb that seemed to move all on its own. 
At the very end of the hallway, two Texas-style swinging doors that we would slam our hands like this, bam, and they would fly open. And there was the lacing lobby at Rollerama, and kids were in a frenzy all over each other, trying to put their skates on. Now over here, there was a counter on this side of the lacing lobby, and behind it, the same tall, bald man would appear. And you would go over and tell him your skate size, and he would go in the back and pick out skates for you out of a crate, and then come back to the counter and bend double, leaning all the way over to give you those skates. And the rental was part of the $2. Over on that side of the lacing lobby, there was another counter, and behind it, a very pretty young woman stood. And we were always attracted to that counter. <laughs> Not because of the pretty young woman, we were still little children. <laughs> we were attracted to it because of the smells that came from behind this counter. Pizza, corn dogs. And when you went over there, there was a little window built into the counter and you could see candy bars lined up behind it. And right on the corner, of that white countertop, there was a tall, crystal clear, barrel-shaped jar filled with kosher dill pickles. <laughs> and I love kosher dill pickles. But as I mentioned, I came from a poor family and never had the money to get a pickle. I had the $2 to get in. I would get my rental skates and sit on one of those long wooden benches there in the lacing lobby. These were the pews of our roller skating church. I sat there and there was a bench built in underneath of it. Take my shoes off, put it under. And in the 80s when I was a child, our roller skates were holdovers from the 70s and they came up all the way to your knees. And they were rental skates, and the laces were frayed at the ends. So you'd have to lick your fingers and rub them around the ends, and then go up 30 pairs of eyelets all the way to your knee. And when you got to the top, there was still this much lace left over, so you wrapped it around your shin and did a big bunny ear. <laughs> then the other one all the way up, and it seemed to take forever, and all your friends were out on the roller skating rink, but finally when you got them laced all the way up, you could step out of the lacing lobby onto the worn wooden boards of the roller skating rink with the first powerful push, <laughs> And then we were going around and around, faster and faster. And out there you realize that the $2 didn't just pay for your admission or the skate rental. The $2, most importantly of all, bought freedom. Now hanging from the ceiling of Rollerama, there was a great big board about a foot thick, this wide, that tall, and it was divided up into nine different rectangles. And each rectangle had its own light bulb inside of it, and words painted on the outside. And normally this light bulb was lit up, and when it was lit up, the words shone and said, all skate. We were flying around that ring. But sometimes that one went off, and this one over here turned on, and it said, couples only. And I was never on the ring for that one. <laughs> sometimes this one down here turned on. It was even worse. It said, ladies' choice. <laughs> and I was an unathletic, small, scrawny, geeky kid, and none of the ladies ever chose me. But sometimes this one would turn on and it was my favorite because when this light bulb turned on, all the other lights would dim down to complete darkness. 
they would turn on a spotlight that shone a beam of light onto a disco ball right there in the center. And light would reflect off of it, dancing all around every wall of Rollerama. And the music would turn on. Bum, 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 ba-dum, ba-dum. Dun, 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 da, dun, da, dum. And the tall, bald man with the mustache would skate out to the center with a pair of poles that had pegs going up the side. Dun, dun, dum, da, dum, ba-dum. Dun, 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 da, dun, da, dum. And the very pretty young woman from the concession stand would roller skate out. Dum, dum, bum, ba, dum, ba, dum. And crown those poles. Dun, da, dum, da, dum, ba, dum. With a wooden bar. And all the kids in Rollerama lined up behind it. At the very end of the line, after 20 or so kids, was me. Shorter than all the rest. And everyone lined up to play because if you were the winner, your prize was a coupon for one free concession. And I could look past that line of kids, past the poles with the pegs and the worn wooden boards, the lacing lobby right there to the corner of the concession counter where there was that crystal clear jar filled with my prize. And it started. Bum, 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 ba-dum, ba-dum, one by one. Dum, bum, bum, ba-dum, ba-dum. They went under. Dum, bum, bum, ba-dum, ba-dum. Dum, 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 ba-dum, ba-dum. Dum, dum, ba-dum, ba-dum. And then it was my turn. Dum, dum, dum. Da-dum, da-dum. Dum, da-dum, da-dum, da-dum. And then there were 18 kids left. And they moved the bar down a few pegs. Dun, 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 da, dum, da, dum. Dun, da, dum, ba, dum, ba, dum. One by one. Dum, da, dum, ba, dum, ba, dum. Everyone took their turn. Dum, 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 da, dum, da, dum. Until it was my turn. Dun, da, dum, da, dum, da, dum. Dun, dum. Dun, da, da, dum. Dun, da, dum, ba, dum, ba, dum. And then there were nine kids left. Dun da dum da dum ba dum, dun da dum ba dum da dum, dun da dum da dum da dum, dun 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 da dum, dun da dum da dum da dum. Forward was harder. Dun da. But I could do it. Dun da dum da dum, dun da dum da dum da dum. And then there were two kids left. And they moved the pole down so far that it looked like it was about half a foot off of the ground. And I was first up. And at this point, it was time for the secret move. Which, if you grew up roller skating, you knew. You took your ear and put it over on your shoulder. And then you did a half split in the same direction, down as low as you could go. Like that. You would reach your other hand out below your skate because they were four square wheels and there was room between the sole and where the wheels were. You could grab onto the bottom of your foot there, ear on your shoulder, half split, hand under your skate, grab on, take the deepest breath you could, and breathe out behind you for propulsion to get you going. And I was heading towards that bar. I saw the poles. There was a crowd out in the lacing lobby cheering me on. And as I got closer, I could see 
over top of the bar still. So I squatted down even lower. It was time for shallow prayers at this point to things that were popular and small back then. Dwarves, smurfs, gnomes, things like that. Help get me under that pole. And as I got closer and closer, I was running out of steam right as I got there and my head hit the bar and it fell off. Hitting the rink several times and rolling away. And I stood up and skated off of the rink and collapsed out in the lacing lobby and turned just in time to see Claire Pinson win. She was also really little, just like me. My eyes glued to my feet. The shame sank from the ceiling. I was that close to winning. And then I heard this voice from over my shoulder. Hey, nice move out there. I looked over my shoulder. It was Claire. I didn't want to talk to her. She had just beat me. Thanks. And I looked back down at the ground. And then her hand came over my shoulder and grabbed onto my hand and pulled me up and across the lacing lobby to where the concession counter was. She reached down into her pocket and pulled out that coupon she had just won and reached it way up and slid it across the counter. And that pretty woman came over, opened the glass jar and pulled out one pickle. She gave it to Claire and Claire used her little hands to snap it in half and shoved half into my hands. <laughs> said, here. And Claire and I shared a cool, crisp, crunchy, kosher dill pickle. And then someone said, hey, look. And the all-skate light bulb turned off, and couples only turned on. And she said, come on, let's go. Grabbed me by the hand, pulled me out there. And around, and around, and around we flew. And that's the story of the first time I ever won anything. The story was Rollerama, told for you by Adam Booth. Oh, what a great story that is, Samantha Danes. I love that story. It's so cute and fun. And because you, you think he's going to win. Because yeah. he says it's the first time I ever won anything, and then he doesn't, but he, then he does. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah, ro romance and danger and anticipation on the all on the floor of the roller rink right yeah emotions are so much when you're a kid your emotions are everything's so much more important that's right and yeah. so losing is so devastating and then getting the pickle is so great <laughs> i love how he tells that i will admit i gotta i gotta tell you i will admit to every once in a while just going on ebay and looking for that uh pair of blue Roller skates with the red and white trim and the red polyurethane wheels that were given to me as a Christmas present from my grandmother wow. that I used to wear in fourth grade. But you said you've never been roller skating. No, so, I'd love to. So in your, in your, you know, Adam Booth, Sam Payne era childhood, <laughs> your 11-year-old childhood, what, what, was there a thing? Razor scooters. <laughs> Razor scooters was the thing. I wore I wore flip flops. Yeah, yeah. Which my parents probably didn't like. No helmet. But my <laughs> my 
my street was a was a just a circle loop and so we would ride those razor scooters around and around and around that every day it. after school oh that was it i should have guessed <laughs> <laughs> well what a delight to listen to that story and of course we always hope that the stories that we bring you here on the show spark memories and thoughts for you that you can share as stories with the people that you love that's a great one and there's a lot more coming up on the Appleseed. You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. It's such a pleasure for me to be with you on this episode of The Appleseed. If you're just joining us a moment ago, we heard Adam Booth's story, Rollerama. And there's a story from China told for you by Judy Lubin coming up, a story called The Pearl That Shone at Night. And you're going to hear from Joseph Bruchak, too, the storyteller and author who's going to bring you Gluskabe and the Water Monster. But first, how about a memory? An entry in the Radio Family Journal. The Radio Family Journal with Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family, right when you need it, on the Appleseed. What's your very earliest memory? If yours is like mine, it's persistent, but also foggy. Just a hazy image or a sound. Again, if yours is like mine, it's likely of a time before you yourself were very good at interpreting things, a time before you had many words, a time before you had much context. My earliest memory is of looking up at a blue sky through the churning, wave-pocked lens of about three feet of water. My parents had their wedding reception in my grandparents' backyard on the lawn. That was a long time before I came along, and I never knew that lawn. By the time I had come along, They had replaced their backyard, my grandparents had, with a swimming pool. I've got family photos of all the aunts and uncles and us kids and my grandparents all gathered on the diving board of that swimming pool. I've got memories of grilling lunch on the patio by the pool. Mine was a family of musicians, and I remember jam sessions by the pool. My dad on the guitar, my mom on the fiddle. A lot of memories would gather around that swimming pool over the years, but the very first one was this. When I was just a tiny baby, just learning to walk, I somehow got away from everyone and headed for the enormous bright summery blue of that pool. I toddled right to the concrete lip of that pool and then right out onto the water. Of course, I went right under, and there I was in my very earliest memory looking up through the water at the blue sky. I know now that it could have been the end of me. I can't imagine what my grandparents felt having built that pool for the family's enjoyment and their tiny grandson stumbling in. If I allow myself to think about it much, I get kind of freaked out. Thinking of what might have happened is a road that's tough to go down, even in my private thoughts. But I can tell you what did happen. That memory, that earliest memory of mine, isn't just a static image looking up through the water at the sky. In that memory, as I'm looking up at the blue, a shadow comes across the sun, and there's a splash, and the water goes wild around me. The first-hand memory ends there, the blue sky through water, then a shadow, and then a splash, and then the wild water around me. That's it. Memories are tricky in their level of detail sometimes, aren't they? 
Like a lot of the things that happened to us very early in our lives, I know a lot more about what happened that day than I actually remember. I know because I've been told by my grandparents and my folks, my aunts and uncles, that shadow across the sun in my memory was my mother. By the grace of God, she saw me tumble over the concrete edge and into the pool, and she was on her feet in a flash. She was young then, a kid, really. I'm now more than twice the age she was then. She was barefoot in jeans and a concert t-shirt. Funny that what she was wearing is such a part of the story. She was in the water in an instant. To me, just a shadow across the sun, and then a splash, and then a wildness in the water, and then I was in her arms, soaked but safe. Not even much worse for the wear, safe and sound in the arms of my mother. It must have been terrifying there below the water. I must have panicked and sputtered and swallowed water. It might have taken some time back in the light of day, back on land, to get me back to normal. But those sensations, danger, panic, they're not part of my memory, only the rescue, only the feeling of being safe and sound. Well, some of my mother is going away now. She's losing memories we tell her these stories that she has for so long told us. So many of them are about how she rescued us, kept us safe and sound. She loves the stories, but it's like they're being told to her for the first time. She doesn't have the memories. The concert t-shirts and blue jeans are all long gone. But just a few weeks ago, my sister, visiting from far away, put my mom's old violin into my mom's hands. and No one knew what would happen. My sister strummed a guitar. My mom played an old hymn tune. My sister sent us a cell phone video of that little performance on my mom's back porch. And there they both are, intent on making music together. My sister looking at my mother and my mother looking off somewhere else through eyes that don't see the porch or the yard or even the violin very well. She's living in a world filled with the churning waves of uncertainty about the future for both of them, in a world where the loss of memory and the mounting general confusion of the world must leave my mother feeling like she's drowning sometimes, or at least like she's seeing the sun through a film of water. I can't see any of that as they play together. All I see is the safe and sound. The Radio Family Journal of Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family, right when you need it, on the Appleseed. Thanks for joining me for that entry in the Radio Family Journal. Coming up, a story told for you by Judy Lubin, a story called The Pearl That Shone By Night, a story from China. But first, how about a conversation with a friend? Great stories come into our lives in so many ways through the films that we see, the books that we treasure, the meals that we share, and talking about some of those ways in which great stories get down into our hearts and minds is something that we love to do with friends. And I'm pleased to be joined here on the Apple Seat by Bruce Walker, a longtime friend of the show. And Bruce, it's great to have you with me. Oh, man, it's great to be here. I'm looking forward to this day. You know, some of the most potent memory triggers can be found in old photographs. And I bet you've got one or two on your walls. <laughs> My wall behind me, if you could look and, and see, is filled with family 
pitchers, not only current, but reaching back into the past as far back as 1885. Oh, man. Yeah. Well, tell us about one of them, will you? Okay. Well, one of them, and I guess the one that, that really sparks a lot of memories for me is the one of my grandmother Mara. My grandma Mara and her family were Creek Indians, grew mm -hmm. up in Franklin County, Alabama, and I am Creek and Scotch Indian heritage. And when I see this picture, I have a picture here that shows not only her in the middle between her parents, there is her mother, my great-grandmother to the side, full-blooded Creek Indian, and then my great-grandfather who ran a 200-plus acre farm blind. He's blind, wow. born blind. And I see this, and it, and it instills in me the courage that we today, there's nothing we face that we can't handle. And that's the beauty of family stories because you can look back into your DNA and into right. your past. And that's what I'm concerned about. Not so much tooting the horn of my family, but showing people how to toot the horns of their family because it gives to them a sense of place, a sense of context, and it gives resolve and endurance and perseverance comes when you realize there's nothing that my ancestors have faced that I can't face too. Mm. You know, I'll tell you, we've talked to so many storytellers on the show, and sometimes I like to ask them how they know that a storytelling performance has been successful. And you know, they all give just about the same answer. And the answer they give is, you know, if we uh, tell a story on stage, and then as people are leaving the tent or the concert hall, turned toward one another, telling stories about their own lives and their own families, then we know we've succeeded, right? Oh, absolutely. That that's when I consider mission accomplished. That I'll stand <laughs> at the back at the at the merch table or somewhere, yeah. and I I'm got my ears tuned. And <laughs> I, I'm thankful that people come up, shake my hand, say thank you. But what really makes me smile is I hear off in the background, well, you know, my grandmother so and so, and and I, they launch into telling about their family. Yeah, I, that that's that is great. You know that that photo that you're looking at yeah. has uh, three people in it. You're great grandparents and of course you mm -hmm. talk about farming blind right and what a remarkable story that is yes but there's another person in that photo as well that's your grandmother isn't it yes my, my grandmother mama mara we called her and uh, mama mara was a very fiercely independent person mm -hmm. and the thing about her and my grandfather Albert Mara, of course, her name was Hall. There was a little town over there in Franklin County called Halltown. And on a, I guess it'd be like a early spring morning, uh, Mama Mara got up and went to the kitchen and started making special culinary dishes she was putting into a box that she was going to take that afternoon over into town to the to the school because they were going to have a box supper auction now in rural communities uh they had e-harmony christian mingle and match way before these people ever thought of it <laughs> because they called it the box supper auction and all the eligible bachelors the eligible bachelorettes would all look forward to that spring event and this is the first time my grandmother went to that spring event because uh, she was old enough now to be considered uh, of marriaging material. And so <laughs> she went to that auction and my grandpa on the other side of the county, he was a Scotchman. In fact, they all came over here from the highlands of Aberdeen up in, up in the northern part of Scotland. And so he had heard about my grandmother, in fact, they had inside information he did about my grandma. See, the way the box auction worked, which was really kind of unique, 
you had all these beautifully decorated boxes set on a stage out in front and the eligible bachelors would bid on that box. But what their real <laughs> impetuous was, was to be able to eat that meal with the young lady that cooked that meal. And so it's kind of a neat little thing because you get, get to discover if, if this person that you were considering uh, could cook. And then number two, you get a chance to interact with them to see if they also had the kind of personality that would fit with you. So my grandpa through one of the cousins found out about my grandmama and the cousin said, I'll, I'll watch and tell you which box is hers. So they wound up down there and at the, at the box supper and the bidding began one dollar, two dollar, dollar and a quarter, two, two twenty-five, two fifty. Well, when it got up to over $2, which back in 1895 was a month's oh, wages, yeah. Yeah. everybody gasped in the audience. There was spirited bidding going on between uh, <laughs> my, my grandpa and another man, the dreaded old Mr. Crowder. Now, old Mr. Crowder was a bachelor who had tried to find him a bride for years, and he had bushy eyebrows, onion breath, gap teeth. He just wasn't married <laughs> material. And so the, the bidding kept going. Finally, my grandpa ran out of money. And he turned to my namesake, Bruce, uh, that's who I'm named after one of my great uncles. And he turned to him and said, Hey, I'll cut firewood for you for two, two weekends for $2. My, uh, <laughs> grand, my great uncle smiled, gave him the money and he hollered out $5. And when he hollered out that amount, two and a half months worth of, worth of wages, old man Crowder slipped back into the crowd and my <laughs> Uh, grandma and grandpa stepped forward. They both liked what they saw. That spring, they became engaged. That fall, they got married. And, you know, I'm sitting here thinking about this now. <laughs> if, it, if it hadn't been that my great uncle Bruce had needed firewood, I wouldn't be here. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what a wonderful story. I'll tell you, you know, Bruce Walker is, uh, is something of a specialist in stories like that. And the stories of his family will make you think of stories of, her, of, of your family. And you can find Bruce at Bruce storyteller.com. It's been such a pleasure to have him with us. Bruce Walker, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, Sam, thank you. Great stories come into our lives in so many ways. Such a pleasure to chat with Bruce Walker about an old photograph. Maybe you've got an old photograph that you'd like to talk about with the people you love. We encourage you to do it. Lots more coming up. You're going to hear Judy Lubin's story, The Pearl That Shone by Night, up next here on The Appleseed. You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. It's such a pleasure for me to be with you on this episode of The Appleseed. How about a story from China, a story told for you by Judy Lubin. This one is called The Pearl That Shone by Night, and we're happy to bring it to you on The Appleseed. <laughs> The Pearl That Shone By Night Long ago, a dragon princess lived in a grand palace at the bottom of the eastern sea. She was vibrant and full of life and known for her great wisdom. When it came time for her to marry, her father said to her, My dear daughter, I am a powerful dragon king, and I will find for you the wealthiest and most powerful husband in all the seas. But the princess merely laughed and said, 
No, thank you, father. I want only a husband who is honest and brave. After a lengthy search, the king scouts finally found a candidate, a poor woodsman who lived near a river bend far away. The king and his daughter prepared a test for the woodsman to ensure that he was indeed honest and brave. One night, the dragon princess changed herself into the form of a young woman and sat in the moonlight near the river bank. In a dream, a messenger for the dragon king came to the poor woodsman and said, Wake up and go to the river bend where you will find a beautiful maiden. Ask for her hand in marriage. The woodsman awoke and jumped out of bed. Just as he reached the door, his older brother, who had been asleep in the same room, called out, Where are you going? Excitedly, the woodsman told his brother about the dream and about the maiden waiting for him at the river. His older brother scoffed. You are so foolish. Who would pay so much attention to a dream? Go back to sleep. But the poor woodsman did not listen. He continued out the door and down to the river. There he saw the young woman. Never in all his life had he seen anyone so beautiful. Her face glowed under the light of the full moon. Her eyes were as deep as two pools of water, so crystal clear that the woodsman could see straight through to her heart. He knew instantly that she was wise and kind. So taken with the maiden was he that he did not notice that his brother had followed him. Both at the same time, the two brothers went to the woman and asked, Will you marry me? The maiden laughed. She looked at them and said, Tell me, which one of you is honest and brave? That is the one that I will marry. Right away, they both shouted, I me! am. The maiden laughed again and said, Very well, we will determine this with a test. I will marry whichever one of you brings me a pearl so luminous that it glows by night. Do you know where you can find such a pearl? Wanting to impress the maiden, the older brother said importantly, Of course I do, although my stupid younger brother surely does not. The younger brother agreed. Dear maiden, I do not know where I can find a pearl that shines by night. Please, can you tell me where to go? The maiden replied, You have asked a wise question. The dragon king of the eastern sea has such a pearl in his palace. He will give it to you if you ask him. Then she handed him a wooden paddle and told him, This is a magic paddle. Put it in the water when you arrive at the Eastern Sea, and it will open a path through the water to the palace. At this, the older brother asked, What about me? Why can't I have a paddle? The young woman took out a second magic paddle. 
Before she could hand it to him, the older brother grabbed the paddle and ran off. He jumped onto the family's only horse, and off he went. Left without a horse, the younger brother began the journey on foot. He was days behind his older brother, who rode on as quickly as he could. But the older brother stopped suddenly when he came to the edge of an enormous flood. Submerged under the floodwaters was a village that had been soaked by torrential rain and by the water that had spilled out of the riverbed onto the surrounding land. The villagers were busily trying to bail the water away from their houses and away from their crops, because if the water soaked the crops much longer, the crops would die for good, leaving them with no food for years to come. And if the water soaked their houses much longer, the houses would fall from the weight of the wet wood. Oh, how they were fretting! The older brother yelled out to them, "You there, get me a boat and help me to cross this bothersome flood." I am on an important errand and must get to the Eastern Sea to visit the Dragon King immediately. When they heard this, the villagers could not believe their ears. The Dragon King of the Eastern Sea had a golden dipper that could bail out the entire village in three small dips. If they had that dipper, they would be saved. They begged the stranger to borrow it for them. Without it, our village will be lost. They cried. The older brother thought about this and finally said, "All right, I will borrow the dipper for you if you get me a boat to cross this ridiculous flood and if I get some food." For the older brother was starting to feel hungry. One of the villagers cried out, "Please, sir, we have so little food for ourselves. We can share the few crumbs that we have, but no more." Then no deal, the older brother yelled. "Fill my belly, or I won't get the dipper." Because they could do nothing else, they gathered all the food they had, with hunger gnawing at their bellies. They rowed the stranger across the flood. Two days later, the younger brother came to the very same village. The village was still under water, and the villagers were still trying to bail themselves out from the flood. Their crops and their homes were on the verge of ruin. The poor woodsman rushed over to help with the bailing. He worked all day side by side with the villagers, without even stopping to introduce himself. It was only at the end of the day when the villagers stopped to rest, and he heard them talking about the golden dipper, that he said to them, "Why, I am going to visit the Dragon King of the Eastern Sea. I would be glad to borrow the dipper for you." He left early the next morning, hurrying his pace so that he could return quickly with the dipper. He journeyed for two more days before he came to the Eastern Sea. At the edge of the sea, he saw his older brother standing on the shore, wide-eyed and shaking like a leaf. Next to him, the sea was under heavy storm. Winds blew and howled about him, 
waves crashed so fiercely that they reached up to the surrounding mountains and pulled boulders down into the sea. The older brother stood at the shore, immobile save for his tremors, and unable to enter the water. But the younger brother did not hesitate. The village needed the dipper quickly. He took out his magic paddle, put it in front of him, and stepped into the water. As soon as he did this, whoosh, the paddle cut open the sea. There in front of him was an awe-inspiring castle of rich red coral studded with jewels. The two brothers ran towards the palace where the dragon king greeted them warmly and said to them, Welcome to my palace and to my treasures. Every guest is welcome to visit my treasure room. The Dragon King invited in the two young men and took them to the far end of the palace. Before opening the door to the treasure room, the king told them, Take anything you like, though I have one rule. Each guest may take only one treasure. Only one. As soon as the door was opened, neither one of the brothers could believe their eyes. The enormous room was bursting with such gold and jewels as they had never seen before. Elaborate jade carvings, golden statues, brilliant emeralds. Near to the door was shelf after shelf of pearls so luminous that they glowed even in the dark treasure room deep under the sea. The older brother sprinted to the shelves, grabbed the biggest pearl, and stuffed it into his sack. As he started off, his eye was caught by all of the other treasures, pendants of pure gold, jade, goblets, silken tapestries. He grabbed a gold pendant and tried to slip it into his sack, but the guard caught him and kicked him out. The younger brother stood in awe, quietly surveying the wondrous room, he, too, saw the many shells of glowing pearls. He looked at those pearls and thought about the maiden with her kind, beautiful eyes and her kind, beautiful heart. He thought to himself, My life would be so happy if I married such a wonderful young woman. But then he saw the Golden Dipper sitting right next to the row of pearls. He thought about the people in the village who would lose their food and their homes if he did not bring them the Golden Dipper. How could he let them suffer? He knew what he had to do. He picked up the Dipper, put it in his bag, and left the treasure room. When the younger brother went to thank the Dragon King for his gracious gift, he found that his older brother was already on his horse, hurrying towards home. When the older brother arrived at the flooded village, the villagers gathered around him and begged, Where is it? Where is the Golden Dipper that will save our homes and our crops? Defiantly, the older brother snapped, 
The Dragon King wouldn't let me have it. There was nothing I could do. He kicked his horse and galloped off. Two days later, the younger brother arrived, holding the dipper above his head and calling, Look what I have. The village will be saved. A villager took the dipper and began to bail the water. With the first dipper full, the water inside all of the houses disappeared. With the second dipper full, the crops returned. And with the third dipper full, all of the flood water vanished, leaving the land just as it was before the flood. When the water receded, the villagers found that oysters had come to live in the middle of the village, where the flood had covered the ground. Oh, the villagers were so hungry. They quickly cracked open those oysters and made themselves a feast of oyster meat. To their surprise, one of the oysters contained a small black pearl. It was dull and drab, one of the ugliest pearls they had ever seen. But it was a pearl nonetheless. The villagers immediately gave it to the woodsman to thank him for bringing the dipper. By the time the woodsman was leaving the village, his older brother had already arrived at the river bend where the maiden was waiting. Seeing her sitting by the river, he took the pearl out of his bag and said, Look what I have. Now you will be my wife. Look at the glow of this fine pearl. The maiden said simply, I asked for a pearl that shines by night. We will have to wait until then to judge its glow. When the older brother returned by the light of the moon, he took the pearl out of his bag. How surprised he was to see that it was dull and did not shine at all. The older brother became so angry that he threw the pearl down upon the ground where it broke open. Out came a horrible smelling pus. Several days later, his younger brother arrived at the river bend to deliver his bad news. I'm sorry, dear maiden but I have no pearl for you. But the maiden said to him, You do have a pearl in your bag. The younger brother took the dull black pearl out of his bag and said, This is just an ordinary pearl that does not shine, even by day. The maiden replied, We must wait until night to judge the pearl. Later that night, when the moon was high, the younger brother came back with the pearl. The older brother snuck along behind him, hoping to watch his brother's humiliation. As soon as the woodsman took the pearl out of his bag, he could see that it glowed brighter than the moon. Its silver light illuminated the whole river so that it was as bright as day. The maiden took the pearl in her hands and held it up high. It outshone even the stars. She threw it up into the air, and the sky was filled with light. It was so bright that the older brother had to cover his eyes. While the older brother huddled on the ground hiding, the pearl unfolded into a majestic palace. Golden robes appeared on the woodsman and the princess. 
Hand in hand, they walked into the palace, where they were immediately wed. The palace floated off, leaving the older brother behind. It finally settled at the bottom of the Eastern Sea, where the woodsman and the dragon princess lived happily for 10,000 years. Judy Lubin with the pearl that shone by night. Such a pleasure to be with you today. We've got one more story for you, this time from the prolific author and storyteller Joseph Bruchak. This is from a collection of stories called The Wind Eagle and Other Abenaki Stories. This is Gluskabe and the Water Monster, here on The Appleseed. Kizinimska undamo unkamasa agask ulilawa konganomp. Gluskabe and the Water Monster after Gluskabi brought tobacco, Grandmother Woodchuck was very happy and contented. It made Gluskabi feel good to see how happy she was and to know that he had provided something good for her and for their children's children. Grandmother, he said, I think it is time for me to travel around now. It is time for me to search for things and transform them so that our children and our children's children will not have such a hard time. I won't be gone long. Then Gluskabi climbed into his stone canoe and set off down the rivers. In those days, the rivers were difficult to travel on, and Gluskabi saw that would be hard for the people. In some rivers, there were big waterfalls, and he made them so that they were not so dangerous. In other places, he made the carrying places clear so that people could portage more easily. Some say that he could have made things even easier for his people and that for a time he made the rivers so that one side of the stream would flow up and the other flow down. But he decided that would make his children and his children's children too lazy, and he made it so that all the rivers flow eventually into the sea. For a long time he traveled along like this. Then he came to a place where there was no water at all. The whole riverbed was empty. Gluskabi picked up his canoe and placed it upside down there. Some people say it is still there today and point out the big white stone that was Gluskabi's canoe. Then he began to walk upriver. Before long he came to a village with many unhappy people. They had no water and they were dying of thirst. When they saw Gluskabi, they were pleased. Stranger, said the chief of the village, have you been sent here by Tabaldak in answer to our prayers for help? What is wrong? said Gluskabi. Oh, said the chief, everything is wrong. We lived happily in our village by the river for a long time. Then a great monster built a dam upstream and stopped the water. His name is Aglebemu, and whenever we beg him and his people for water, he always answers, give them none, give them none. Some of us have died of thirst and we are too weak to even go and look for a place where there still is water. Now Gluskabi was angry. Where can I find this Aglibemu? he said. Only walk upstream where the river once was, said the chief, and you will come to his dam. Please try to help us obtain water. Then other people in the village pleaded with Gluskabi. If only there were water, one of them said, I would jump in and swim around forever. 
If there were water, said another, I would dive deep and never come up. If there were water again, said yet another, I would drink it and drink it and never stop. Thus the people of the village spoke. So Gluskabe began to walk. He walked up the river, seeing the dried out bodies of fish and turtles and other water animals. All of the trees along the stream had died for lack of water. The clay of the river bank was cracked and dry, and dust rose up as he walked. Finally, he went around a bend in the river, and there was a big dam. On top of the dam stood warriors holding long spears. Who are you? called out one of the warriors. I have come to ask for water, said Gluskabi. Give him none, said another of the warriors. So says our chief. But Gluskabi looked hard at the first warrior, and the man grew frightened. I will go ask our chief, he said. But when he came back, the answer was the same. Give him none, the warrior repeated. So says our chief. Now Gluskabi took a deep breath, and as he did so he grew bigger, so big that he was twice the height of a tall man. Ask your chief again for water, he said. The man, who was very frightened now, did as he was told. When he came back, he had a cup made of a piece of bark in his hand. In the cup was a small amount of muddy and bad-smelling water. This is all the water which our great chief Aglibemu can spare, said the warrior. Now Gluskabi took another deep breath. He grew so large that he was bigger than the tallest pine tree. With only two strides, he stepped right over the dam and came to the place where Aglibemu sat. Aglibemu was a very large, frightening-looking monster. His body was all green and his belly was huge. He sat with his long toes, which looked like yellow tree roots, in the water. Why do you refuse to give my grandchildren water? Gluskabe said. Water was given to us for everyone to share. But Aglibimu only opened up his huge mouth and stared at Gluskabe with his huge eyes and said, Give them none! in a frightening voice. Gluskabe, though, was not afraid. He took another deep breath and became even bigger. Then he reached down with one hand and picked Aglibimu up. He squeezed him so hard that his eyes popped out and his back was bent. He squeezed him so hard that Aglibimu became smaller and smaller, and when Gluskabi was finished, the water monster was nothing but a bullfrog. Now, Gluskabi said, you are going to have to give up your water. But Aglibimu, the bullfrog, pleaded with Gluskabi, Give me some, give me some, he croaked. So Gluskabi took pity on him and threw him into the water. To this day you can hear the bullfrog using that big voice of his, which once was so frightening, even though he only dares to do so at night when he thinks Gluskabi is sleeping. Give him run, give him run, he croaks. Then Gluskabi picked up a big yellow birch tree and used it to break open the dam so that all the water rushed downstream to the village of the thirsty people. When the people saw the water come rushing down, many of them were so happy that they leaped into the water. The one who said he would dive deep and never come up turned into a fish. The one who said he would swim around forever became a little green frog. And the one who said he would drink and drink and never stop also turned into a fish. Many of those in that village of thirsty people were transformed in that way. 
To this day, there are Abeniki people whose names show that they are descended from those ancestors who turned into water creatures and who still swim around in the water which no one can ever keep for themselves or own. Gluskabe and the Water Monster, told for you by Joseph Bruchak, the prolific storyteller and author with a career that spans decades and decades and decades. A pleasure to hear from Joseph Bruchak. Such a pleasure to have had you with us today. Join us online at byuradio.org slash Appleseed, where you'll find all kinds of great stuff, including many episodes of the show. We call them extras, and they're just a single story, just a few minutes long, in case you only have a few minutes and you want to fill them with a great story. I'm Sam Payne. Our producer is Jeff Simpson. Can't wait to be with you again on The Appleseed. Thanks for joining us for an hour of stories, music, and conversation made for you and your family and brought to you by The Appleseed. The show is a production of BYU Radio. We'll see you next time.